Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Archer Green Peace Summit. We've reconvened here today with Rizbe Godzi, who is a philosophy student at the University of Manchester. And they have chosen to talk about existentialism. That's their decided area of expertise, correct? Well, expertise is definitely a strong word for it, <laughs> Lawrence. Um, I can definitely say it's a strong interest. You know, uh, I've been studying philosophy. Well, I studied it for two years at sixth form. And obviously now I'm going to be going into first year uh, of studying it full time. But um, yeah, you know, existentialism, it was always a sort of branch of philosophy that in interested me. And, uh, you know, just the nature of it being so so expansive and subject to so much interpretation, I think it, it, it makes for good discussion. So uh, I, existentialism is this word that I hear being thrown around quite a lot, quite a lot by you, but quite a lot by other people as well. And I don't really know what it is. Obviously, you hear about people having existential crises and kind of things like that. So, so what what is existentialism? Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of interpretations as to what it means, but at its core, it just boils down to what it means to be a rational individual in, you know, such an expansive and isolative universe, you know? And just the question of, uh, you know, what are the limits of, of individual freedom, basically? And what can we as rational humans, you know, how do we choose to live our lives? What, what do we choose to use this sort of finite life for? And just um, addressing the questions of, you know, uh, re reasons for existence, if you will. So, so you said an isolative universe. What, what do you mean by that? Are you kind of referring to the fact that so far, as far as we know, we're humans are the only kind of intelligent life? In the, in the universe. Yeah, you know, uh, it's it's a somewhat of a terrifying thought to think that uh, just how large the universe is to a point where we can't really conceive, you know, its size or anything like that. But we're just on this rock floating through space and we have all these responsibilities, you know. What, you know, what does it mean to have to live a life of just doing taxes and working a nine to five when ultimately we're just you know one fraction of a speck in what is largely an unfeeling world you know so when we if we look at human life in the context of this huge incomprehensibly large universe does anything that we do matter there we go lawrence you just you just pinpointed the exact question that comes with existential philosophy um I mean, I think a good place to start off with would, in, in order to be able to answer that question, is just looking at the theorists and the different ideas they sort of had. You know, personally, some of my favorites, you know, Sartre, Camus, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, you know, these are all just random words for now until we really <laughs> dive into yeah. uh, who these people were and what they really thought. Um, well, I mean, we can start off with my favorite one, if you want. Um, sure. I was going to say uh, Albert Camus, he was a French existential philosopher in the 1960s. 60s. Uh, he, was, he was born in Algeria to Algerian parents and, um, well, and he, basically uh, he believed that the world as it existed and the things that came with existence were what he described as absurd in the sense okay. that None of it really makes much sense, you know. We're just sort of on this. We're just on this planet, and we're just, you know, forced to deal with this sort of freedom that's just imposed on us without re really any understanding of what we have to do with it, you know. And um, Camus narrowed it down. He narrowed down the main problem that came with this as being the question of suicide and how, you know, suicide was really the only philosophical question that people sh fundamentally have is is existence worth it or is existence not worth it so what did what did this guy think did he think it was worth it well um here's the thing because camu camu i said that camu believed in two different types of suicide he believed in what he described as physical suicide which was literally just people are sick of existing people are sick of living so 
they, they just end their lives and they sort of, you know, that's that. And then beyond that, he also believed in what was called, philosoph- what he described as philosophical suicide. And that was essentially people wasting away their life for, you know, some abstract devotion to religion, maybe, rather where they sort of convinced themselves that, well, there must be a meaning in some sort of abstract metaphysical sense of it, of perhaps there's a God, perhaps there's an aspect of faith that proves that our existence is something that is necessary to continue but you know Camus was very much opposed to both of these he believed that it was important that we sort of face the reality of the absurdism of the world and just sort of march head on uh he had a very famous book called the myth of Sisyphus and you know if you're not familiar with the story essentially Sisyphus was a man who uh, he was condemned by the gods to push a boulder up the hill. Yeah, and, I think I've heard of this one. Yeah, and that was essentially his punishment indefinitely. And, um, you know, Cam- Camus wrote about Sisyphus's... The quote he used was, one must, one must um, believe Sisyphus to be happy, you know? One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Why, why do we have to think he's happy? Because what Camus understood was that in this comparison of Sisyphus to humanity, Sisyphus is forced to push that boulder up the hill, he's forced to do that. Us, we're forced to confront the reality that perhaps we're alone in this world, perhaps we it really does mean nothing, perhaps it is absurd, but that is not reason for one to you know end their life or perhaps devote their life to some abstract cause that they can't prove, but rather to use that life for, not even use it for anything specific necessarily, but just sort of march in that face of adversity and just, you know, push that boulder up the hill. Even if it rolls down again, you sort of keep that continued uh, strength in the face of that. So he would kind of refer to human existence as a struggle against our kind of meaninglessness yeah in a way. yeah I, I think that's a great way to put it because i think you know Camus understood that um it was very hard to be able to justify one's existence in the world as it was and you know even today as it is but that's not necessarily you know that's not necessarily cause for uh marching back but rather something to march forward that being said you know Camus, you know this belief of Camus does come under a lot of criticism because you know, some people argue that it doesn't really address the fundamental problem at hand here, which is, well, it's it's easy to just, you know, smile in the face of adversity, but, you know, how do you actually overcome that existential barrier? Well, this kind of seems like, because you said that, well, you said that Camus, is that his name? Yeah. He, that, that he believes we have to justify our existence, but I don't, I don't think we do. I think we're just here you know sure we might be in a in a rock floating through space in an infinitely large universe but does that really matter what i perceive and what you perceive and what everyone perceives is what's in front of them and just because in the grand scheme of things that won't have much of an impact doesn't mean it won't have an impact on their lives so why why do we have to justify our existence? Or we exist, let's oh, just live well, as we live. I don't think Camus necessarily thought we had to justify our existence in the sense of you, there has to be something that you fight for, there has to be something. I think fundamentally what it was was him just sort of saying that, you know, if anything, there is no reason for a person to, you know, justify their existence with. And that the absurdity of that situation the fact that that existential barrier is just something you we're never going to be able to cross because of the nature of what it is is something which is intrinsically beyond you know your human attainment as a result it's re- all we can really do is just look into that mirror and smile if that makes sense yeah so you so you don't think we will ever be able to truly comprehend the universe in a kind of an, an, an object manner no not in the sense of being able to 
you know rationalize our existence in any meaningful way i think i think a lot of people especially now you have things like simulation theory appearing but i don't think and you know these sort of abstract ideas as to why we exist or what have you but fundamentally i I think even in that situation of you know maybe we are just a computer simulation or maybe we're just part of artificial intelligence or something abstract like that i don't think that nec- i don't think that's really any different to the question we have regarding god already you know no i don't think that the question of well if we if some, we must have a creator who created our creator i don't think that's solved with simulation theory all it really does is it just rewords the sort of question of belief in god in a in a you know perhaps more scientific way but even then it's not something we can intrinsically address yeah because i suppose simulation theory implies that someone made the simulation yeah precisely and how different is that to a god exactly it's no different to just like abstract augustinian concepts like oh god god is just like that in which nothing greater can be conceived and sort of that means that there must be a god because something must have synthesized us well even if that's true you know there must be something to you know kick off that kick off that sort of domino that allows us to even come to existence because it seems like we can trace back we can trace back human existence to essentially just the origin of life we can trace back the origin of our planet, of our galaxy. Yeah, to but, like the Big Bang. Yeah, but, but we for, before the Big Bang, we can't yeah. explain anything, can we? Yeah, and I think the absurdity that Cameron was really talking about here was the fact that there's nothing logical about the existence of human beings. There's nothing logical about the existence of, you know, consciousness is what it is. Why, why, is that, why isn't human existence logical? Well, it, it it's because you know there's no start there's no beginning there's just it just exists and you know that goes against everything we really understand about the world in a uh, materialist sense of everything exists as a consequence of other other things having an impact on it and i think the reality that we need to face that you know we're never going to be able to address that question we're never going to be able to understand why i think it eats you know a lot of existential philosophers believed that it's something that eats away at the psyche of hum- humanity, and that's really the source of what we mean by existential depression and that sort of feeling of isolation that comes with that. It is quite powerful to just kind of think about what the universe is in a way, and, and it's everything. But what what was there before it? It, it is because, as you said, everything that we know has we can trace back to its origin. But the universe is just it's just there. It's all. It's all that's ever been. It's all that ever will be. Yeah. And so it's kind of mind-boggling to just think, this is it, and why is it like it is? Why yeah. is the universe made up of atoms and not something else? You know, who can explain that? Physicists, I suppose, can explain how it's made, but they can't really explain why it's made. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, because of the nature of fact that we can't really answer that question, all we can really do is look at the cards at hand and understand that you know what we are free we're sort of condemned to be free as uh french existentialist jean-paul sartre put it you know man is condemned to be free and what he meant by that is well we can't really answer the question of why we exist we just sort of have to deal with the reality yeah. that we do exist and you know and then uh, a theorist like sartre who w- would have believed that well you know we've faced abandonment by god in the sense that you know we we don't really have we have to face that reality you know if you are an atheist um that there's no real um you know creator or anything that's been able to synthesize us rather we're just sort of you know left on this earth without any reason without any motivation intrinsic to us and as a result, you know, we're just these blank slates waiting to be filled by the world around us, which is, you know, what Sartre believed humans to be. The tabula rasa, just blank slates yeah. waiting to be filled. Yeah. I think a lot of existentialists would agree with that in the sense of, you know what, we can't justify why we exist. All we know is that we're born into this world and we're just created by whatever environment we're sort of born into. And it's up to us as rational individuals to be able to um you know 
reached a point where we can almost write that tablet ourselves mm. if that makes sense so do, do you think there's any kind of like shared human existence is there any kind of uniting point that every human can relate to in, in, in the most basic instinctual way or do you think because we are blank slates in a way there is no unifying factor or do you think as i said before you know there is something that can unite all of us we all have the same basic drives and needs or is it all just dependent on on what people have experienced before yeah well um i mean from my perspective i would argue that um if we're talking about this in the sense of is very universal human nature that we can look to as a defining character trait of our species you know beyond just uh the, the primal aspects of what it means to be an animal you know if a baby is born that baby will desire food it will desire warmth just as any animal would but the thing that differentiates humans from animals um you know as early greek philosophers argued like plato is the fact and aristotle is the fact that we have reason we are rational beings and uh what we mean by human nature what we mean by the way that humans act within civilized society because Obviously, that's the environment we have to talk about when we're discussing human civilization and culture. You know, I don't, I really don't think there is a defining character trait of what it means to be a human. And uh, a lot of French existentialists like Camus, like Sartre, would have more or less agreed with that. Just because, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a good anecdote of if you take a cat and you send it out into the woods that cat will chase mice, it will purr, it will, you know, run about on all fours. Uh, if you do the same with a dog, it will bark, it will um, run around looking for cats to chase or what have you. But, you know, you leave a human in the woods and you know, they're not going to do anything. They're, if they're being raised by dogs, then they're going to act mm -hmm. and behave like dogs. If they're on their own, they're just going to, you know, just scratch themselves to death and die or what have you. But what it is, is that humans, when they are born into a civilized society, when, when they are born into a place where they have the opportunity to learn, I think that's where any human can take any sort of direction in who they become because that slate is getting filled by something, you know, yeah. by something rational, which is what appeals to the rationality. So what is humans. a civilized society and what isn't? Is a civilized society just... Is it people who you know live in in a set in cities or towns? Is it does civilized society rule out you know tribalist people, or is it more kind of basic than that? No, no, I, I don't think when I say civilized society, I don't mean you know whether or not a civilization is rich or poor or what have you. But what I mean is, um, it's you know any any sort of group of people uh, with you know rational thought even from like primal days of primitivism in a small tribe to you know huge bustling cities now you know these are all formed around communities of people you know the, yeah i think uh, a lot of this a lot of liberal theorists you know especially um enlightened one uh, enlightenment era philosophers you know view view society as um uh, well view humans as just individuals whereas I think a lot of uh, existential, especially later on, as existential theory developed and you had um, people like Sartre putting a sort of um, uh, almost a Marxist spin on that. Uh, I think the understanding is that, you know, humans are, we are these individuals, but everything that come, we sort of learn is going to be coming from other human beings and it's going to be impacted by other beings, human beings. And it's ultimately going to be the rationality of other human beings and the rationality that develops within ourselves that is what's going to be the defining characteristic of us as individuals. Do you think this kind of rationality and this kind of education in a way that we can learn, we can learn about people, we can learn from people that came before us, we can learn not just through doing, but we can learn through kind of absorbing knowledge do you think that comes from um do you think because now for most people the main struggle isn't to find food and survive you know do you yeah. think that comes from a place a time when humans do have 
the ability to not worry about the next meal or not worry about yeah. kind of physical threats where they can kind of sit down and, and start to think in a way. Exactly. Like, I, I definitely think that, um, especially now as we're, you know, we're in the 21st century, our lives aren't these sort of abstract, primal, um, instinct-driven lives that our ancestors would have lived tens of thousands of years ago, but are rather, rather, you know, we, we as people... We, ha we have our food, we have mm. our jobs, we have our houses, we have our warmth, we have all these basic needs met. And as a result, a lot of people, uh, what happens is a lot of us have the opportunity to think. And I think it's that opportunity to think that is really what's going to be driving this these existential questions. Especially yeah. if we look at existentialism as a philosophy, it emerged in the Enlightenment era where you were seeing these massive transitions in society from, you know, feudalism, where people would have had to, you know, work countless hours, you know, just trying to survive, not being able, perhaps not being educated. And then in the post-Enlightenment era, as we moved in towards sort of, uh, you know, new stages of um, early stage capitalism and uh, the opportunity for, for people to be able to think about questions of being especially as atheism came along and well became more popular yeah. as a uh, ideological position this gave rise to the questions of well if we don't have a god if we're just sort of expected to sit here and think and think and think and that's all we really have i think that was that was the perfect ground for existential philosophy to really yeah. take off do you think and also an aspect of that was we knew more about our place in reality you know a hundred years before that or maybe more than maybe a thousand years before that we all we knew that there was was an earth yeah but then in this enlightenment period we knew that there was galaxies and there was an outer yeah. space and there was a universe do you think that kind of fundamentally changes how we view ourselves and our role in the universe yeah of course you know if if you're a human in um the you know uh, 1300s and you think that all that there really is is just the earth and yeah. you know, maybe a couple stars or what have you that's going to be a very different position to have especially when you think you know the world's rotating around you and what have you and stuff like that when you when we're suddenly faced with this massive increase of mm. you know scientific understanding about the universe in the past hundred years or so and we really realize just you know how much of a fraction of a fraction that our world really is in the grand scheme of things i think yeah it's obvious that people are going to be having a lot more questions about you know why why are we here what's the, what's the reason yeah. is there creators and not and things like that that fuel existential philosophy imagine being like a caveman like <laughs> thousands of years ago and literally all you know all you think exists all you think reality is is just your kind of area you know you're maybe yeah. a few kilometers in each direction. That's all you know. As far as you know, there is nothing else apart from that. Yeah. That's such a strange way to kind of view the world, isn't it? I mean, who knows? We Right now, maybe we're the cavemen who exactly, think that yeah. <laughs> all that there really is is that couple kilometers either side yeah. when really things are even greater than we could anticipate. So going off that, do you think our universe is all that there is? Or do you think there are kind of extra layers to existence that humans can't really observe or at least right now we can't really observe or even understand well i mean you know these things it's it's really the job of scientists to prove them but all we can really do as philosophers is hypothesize and mm. hypothesize and um in regards to that question the you know the idea of um what 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 can there be that's greater than us you know I'd argue even in that situation where we really do think the earth is like the, you know, the center of the world like they did hundreds or thousands of years ago, even in that situation, I think there would have been a lot of existential angst, which is why religion was so, you know, empowering for a lot yeah. of people. And um, <clears throat> it was for a long time the default world outlook until atheism really came into I mean, flourish. You know, say a thousand years ago, you look up into the sky, you see all these bright lights, you see a sun coming up and down every day. What is a nicer way to think about your place in the world? 
is it nicer to think there is some kind of benevolent God that's made it all for us? This is our world. Yeah. It's been made tailor-made for us. Or just a kind of cold, hard indifference of the universe that there there are millions of planets, millions of miles away that we'll never go to. We are, we're just kind of a natural coincidence that have just occurred yeah. purely by chance. Surely it's more kind of reassuring to believe that we we are special in a way. Uh, I suppose it's more reassuring, but it doesn't necessarily reflect reflect reality as yeah. it exists. Uh, if we look at Nietzsche, for example, you know Nietzsche was probably one of the most influential figures in existential philosophy. His understanding of religion was that, you know, you have these people sort of embracing this, uh, you know, people who are perhaps, you know, lesser in society, considering the lowest scales of, you know, class structure, or what have you, who are turning to religion as the only justifier for their existence, you know, rather than really doing anything beyond that. You know, you look at the, you know, one thing that Nietzsche really hated was, from Christianity, for example, was the fact that, well, we would take these people who are on the lower rungs of society and tell them that, you know, your meekness is a virtue, your um, turning the other cheek is a virtue, you know, your embracing things for how they are is a virtue. And what it did was it, it really made virtues out of these, you know, weak behaviors and uh Nietzsche described that as um you know he argued that that was a slave morality he he described it as Slavin morale and uh what he meant the thing that he believed that existential philosophy would bring forward was this idea that you could overcome that and you could um you know you'd put aside these sort of weak values that came with religion these weak values which were a consequence of people not really being able being able to confront the reality of just how um sorry their existence is and how perhaps abandoned they feel to the point where they'd need to turn to a higher power you know Nietzsche believed we should turn away from that and really emphasize our own free will and uh independence as individuals and he, he believed that um being able to overcome that barrier and being able to, you know, pursue something greater than that. He believed those people were, you know, supermen. He believed in that yeah. concept of Ubermensch. And um, I think this really drives the conversation into this um, direction of, well, you know, existentialism isn't just one unified theory. There's a whole bunch of them, yeah. a bunch of, you know, existential thinkers and uh, branches of existential philosophy but uh, the real contradiction here the real conflict comes from what is active nihilism and what is uh, passive nihilism what is active existentialism what is passive okay so what what is what is active nihilism well uh, active nihilism is the belief that we're abandoned we're alone all we really have is our free will. All we really yeah. have is our, you know, opportunity. What's in front of us. What's in front of us yeah. and confronting that reality head on. And using that absurdism, using that, you know, um, abstract indifference of the world as reason to, you know, pursue the betterment of one's self or one's environment. Yeah. Whereas... Passive nihilism is just, well, enough, everything's meaningless, so why should we do anything? We should just die. Yeah. Which um, I don't think a lot, you know, there aren't really a lot of existential so philosophers who believe that. Passive nihilism is everything's meaningless, sad face. Yeah. Active nihilism, everything's meaningless, happy face. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect description, <laughs> I think. Um, do, do you think that, because um, obviously we, we kind of discussed religion and atheism, do you yeah. think atheism is just right now kind of the dominant ideology do you think it will ever go away do you think maybe not a religion but some kind of unifying factor that kind of all the all of kind of the the establishment kind of pretty much governs the world and kind of dominates the world do you think something will eventually replace atheism uh well i think first of all we need to look at atheism as you know within the context of the world as it exists you know i don't think there's there aren't going to be a lot of, you know, atheists among non-educated people. Mm -hmm. There aren't going to be a lot of 
atheists in third world countries where people you know don't have the time to sit and think about you know is there a god is there not a god perhaps uh, perhaps even in these third world communities where you know god is a necessity for people to mm-hmm. even be able to justify their existence of well this is all we have now but you know fingers crossed hopefully they're something better i think as more people get edu- become educated people will be able to not necessarily pick whether or not atheism or theism are correct in and of itself because just as we can't prove religion correctly we can't really prove yeah. the absence of religion guess, correctly suppose, either yeah. it just comes down to you know whether or not uh atheism and in turn you know existential philosophy you know atheistic existential philosophy becomes more popular it really comes down to how many people uh, you know people having more access to education more access to universities more access having their basic needs met and being able to have the opportunity to think about these things without external societal so so do you think atheism is the natural is a natural kind of uh conclusion to better more intelligence do you think with more intelligence atheism naturally occurs oh no i i think there are plenty of people who are smart who are religious and there are plenty of people who are but on a, on a, and on a broad atheistic. sense would you say as the human population becomes more intelligent they will become more atheist um again you know that's on the presumption that atheism is even the correct position to hold you know i don't think I think as people are able to question it, perhaps you'd see more agnostic people appearing as people are sort of unsure about this thing that no one can really prove. But mm. I don't I don't think whether or not atheism becomes more popular or not is going to affect the question of existentialism because you can also have religious existentialism, you know. The you know, the Kierkegaard who people, you know, understand to be the father of modern existentialism as it is he was a christian he believed that um there isn't any way to be able to prove god in a scientific and you know uh materialist manner all, all we really have is this metaphysical understanding of you know religion as it is and as a result you know Kierkegaard, despite having these existential beliefs of you know what it means to be a rational individual in a irrational world despite that he argued that you know people can still take that leap of faith people can still take that leap of belief in something higher than themselves yeah you know i don't i don't i think that's a reasonable and rational position to have I i would agree that someone could still have faith while being an atheist do you agree faith in what in the sense that they can kind of just have to have some kind of cosmic reassurance that that something isn't that life isn't meaningless they can you can be an atheist but you can still have beliefs in in things higher than yourself um or what essentially uh religion filled the kind of the gap in people's yeah. need for something to kind of reassure them and kind of give them something to to believe yeah. in and think about whereas i think religion nowadays many things fill that gap that aren't religion such as you know popular culture fills the gap of kind of a common uniting thing that brings people together yeah or, or politics for example. yeah anything really the kind of yeah a broad thing that people participate in and discuss and it brings any kind of a shared culture comes from it yeah i mean i i can definitely th- I can definitely see that um, people are going to be filling that existential void with something, you know, uh, whether it is, you know, someone's hobbies or whether it is, you know, just mindless television or what have you. People will have to face that reality at some point in their lives. And I think a, a lot of the reason you see these sort of this sort of trope of people in their 40s who go to their nine to five every day and they come home they watch the tv and then you know they freak out and then they don't they don't know what to do they don't they look at their lives they look at their wife they look at their kids maybe yeah and they they just they can't comprehend what it means you know i think 
when people are faced with that, you know, they do feel that with a void, you know, maybe they'll buy a 1990s Ferrari or, you know, maybe yeah. they'll kill themselves or, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> to take it in a grim direction. Existentialism so. seems quite pro-suicide. No, I, I, I completely disagree, actually. I think that existentialism is probably the, you know, as abstract as it seems, as, you know, as absurd as it seems, is probably the philosophy that least supports suicidal behavior. I think what it is, is people have different understandings of what, yeah, it, I suppose what it means. It comes back to that passive or active passive or active yeah existentialist so of course if you're a passive existentialist if you're a passive nihilist then that's going to be a thing but i think a lot of existentialists just like camus for example they look at that absurdity and you know they use it as justification for well you know we really can do whatever we want you know if if the universe truly is this place where humans have the opportunity of complete free will then um that's what they're going to do do you think there's any such thing as morality? Do you think right and wrong exist? Do you think there are some actions that are wrong and humans shouldn't do it? And do you think there are some actions that are right and humans should promote these? Or do you think it is all just... it's There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's, there's things that cause suffering. There's things that decrease suffering. But ultimately, they're just actions. Well, my understanding is that... I guess this comes down to... A, the question of materialism versus idealism you know uh this idea of like intrinsic morality uh it, it really comes down to how the, how the individual cho chooses to view the world but the issue here is that you know maybe a metaphysical philosopher a philosopher who believes in metaphysics like descartes you know descartes would say I think therefore I am and what he would mean by that is well I'm a rational I'm a rational person so I must exist and with that rationality um I can have these specific moral outlooks that you know are completely irrelevant to the way that other people view the world whereas you know if you're going to have a Hegelian understanding of like the the physical the material then you understand that the only reason we have this opportunity to be able to think and be able to rationalize things is because we, you know, we exist. We, I am, therefore, I think. And the reason I'm going on this bit of a tangent is because in regards to that sort of Hegelian understanding, we are the sum of our environment and what we understand, the fact that we can sit here and discuss things like this, the fact that we can sit here and discuss politics, for example, or discuss whether something is right or wrong is because we've had the opportunity from other members of civilized society, for example, to have this ability to rationalize things mm. and be able to reason. And I think with that understanding in mind, the fact that the only thing, the only reason we can even sit here and have this conversation is because of the impact that other people have. We need to orient our morality based around, you know, helping other people if that makes sense at yeah. least that's my personal that's such a philosopher's answer well you know philosophy <laughs> always it, it, it can um this isn't a criticism this is probably the the, the best way to go about yeah. answering things like this but it all it, it kind of it analyzes the question and kind of looks at what the question is really asking it kind yeah. of reduces it down to its basic parts you know when i say is there a right and wrong you analyze that question even unconsciously maybe and kind of reduce it down to what 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 is the essence of that question and what is kind of it kind of reduces these big issues down to the most fundamental parts of them precisely because i think when it comes to any when it comes to any issue whether it's even philosophical whether it's a political issue and a social issue or what have you if we look at a problem of a surface you know we need to be you're really only cutting yeah. the plant from its stem. Whereas if you really deep down and you look at the fundamentals of, well, what does it, you know, what is the root of this thing? What is the root of this conversation? Then that's where you really address it from its base. And that's where you can really grasp these yeah. issues at their best. Because, you know, asking me, well, do I believe that morality is right or wrong? I think we as philosophers need to be able to, well, I, we as philosophers could sit here and say, 
yes, uh, morality is an intrinsic part of, you know, it should be, uh, it's this objective set of values that I've decided are correct and everything else, everyone else's opinion is wrong or if we're gonna sit here and say, well, no, um, morality is something completely subjective to people. Well, we need to, we need to be able to look at how can we rationalize these yeah. questions? How can we rationalize these opinions? And if we do, if we can rationalize these issues, if we can rationalize these questions, then how do we solve, a, how do we answer the question in relation to that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Do, do you think the world would be a better place if everyone did that? Everyone kind of analyzed the questions that are being asked? Or do you think, well, there is a place for this kind of deeper, deeper thought that in many cases we do just have to look at what's in front of us and kind of give an answer to the surface level question? Oh, well, um, yeah, you know, I think the world would be a better place. Well, obviously, hum we're all rational beings. We, And given the fact that we have that gift of rationality, well, for someone to give, for someone to curse, but the fact that we have that rationality, you know, it would be intrinsically irrational not to use it. Yeah. You know? uh, I think it comes back to, you know, saying that uh, the point you just said, it reminded me of a Kierkegaard quote that went okay. something along along the lines of, well, humans use freedom of speech as compensation for the freedom of thought they never use, right? Or they uh, don't use. And what he meant by that was, well, we can say stuff, we can have these opinions, we can say whatever we want, but ultimately the, the only thing that really means anything when it comes to conversation, if you even do want to assign any meaning here is how can we rationalize questions how can we rationalize problems how do we address these problems of every how and we need to ensure that we're all as educated as we can be in answering these questions because at the same time i don't think there's anything intrinsically correct or wrong about someone's opinion assuming that they reach that opinion with reason okay. if that makes sense if they achieve that opinion with rationality so what what would you say are some irrational opinions or or maybe irrational wow. people <laughs> irrational people well um i can't really say what is rational or irrational what i can really say is would that... you say that people who are anti-vax are irrational um or would you say they just have a kind of that they, they are rational but the information agree. they're working off is irrational but it's not particularly their fault that that's the information that they're using. They're just be kind of inconned into into believing that. I mean, I don't. I don't think I can really say anything about this topic specifically. Um, all I can really say is that we as philosophers, we as thinkers, we as rational beings, what we should do is, with regards to any question, whether it's philosophical, whether it's a social question, whether it's an economic issue or a political issue. In regards to all of these things, what we really need to do is um, look at these problems at their core, look at these problems at their base, understand the material causes for these issues and be able to address them appropriately. Well, that means to one person, perhaps one scientist yeah. can disagree with another, but so long as they're both using a rational understanding of the way that science works, the way that the world works, then whether or not they reach similar, different or the same conclusion, you know, that's just the nature of argument. That's just the nature of understanding. And I, you know, I can't really relate that to the question of vaccinations or even the question of any social issue, in, you know, fundamentally. But what I can really do is we can really look at questions in the broader spectrum of philosophy in and of itself and sort of come to understandings there, if that makes sense. So you think we should look at like as, as we was talking about before everyone should approach questions and issues as philosophers do yeah you know um but do you think people not, have time for that well exactly that's the issue we need we need to understand that not everyone is going to be able to sit here and yeah you know have a um have a philosophical debate about every single aspect of their you know lives in that broad philosophical sense um and it's not like I'm arguing for some sort of like platonic republic where philosophers make all the decisions. Philosopher king. Philosopher king. You know, I, that's not what I'm saying. But, you know, 
if we're if we're gonna bring this conversation sort of back to existentialism as it is, I think the reason why you know I can call myself an existentialist or other people can call themselves existentialists is because while some people may disagree with existentialism and give a rational argument for why, I think existentialists can also give rational arguments for why they believe what they do. It really comes down to the way you choose to look at the world, you know. If you're going to be a atheist existentialist, well, of course, your your understanding of the way the world works is going to be different to a Christian existentialist or perhaps, you know, even just um, any religious person or, you know, any, anyone who may disagree with your philosophical worldview. But for me, existentialism, the question of what it means to live is something that in fundamentally exists but how can a question exist obviously people can ask it but how how does it how does a question itself exist is it kind of a, a natural thing to ask do you think it's just a natural conclusion that people come to well let's look at the question at hand and that is the question of you know um what it means to be rational what it means to be irrational um i think that if we're looking at this as if we're looking at reason as something that is intrinsic to all human beings, because it fundamentally is the fact that we can have this conversation, but obviously, you know, a, a, a dog's not going to be able to have this. <laughs> well, <laughs> do, how do we know? We, well, we don't know what dogs experience. Um, well, perhaps, well, well, perhaps the question of existentialism for dogs ends at, <laughs> Where did that ball go when it <laughs> falls over a fence? Well, how do we know? But <laughs> I think with humans and the sort of um, broader issues we have regarding our existence as something we can't comprehend, I think the fact that we can look at that and not be able to have an answer, the fact that we don't have an answer means that there must be a question for us not to be able to uh, yeah, give I a suppose. response to, if that makes sense. D do you think... Do you think existentialism is on the rise today? You know, I don't think any more than it was. I think existentialism high. It was probably in the nineteen sixties, to be 60s. honest, because you you got to look at the politics of the nineteen sixties yeah. as well. It was a time of you know social upheaval and you know and colossal changes in the zeitgeist and so, threat of nuclear annihilation. Yeah, you know the the idea that at any moment we might just not exist. So what even is the point? I think the, the nature of global society as it existed back then really allowed for philosophers to be able to delve into these issues at hand. And um, maybe now, you know, issues like global warming are going to be able to perhaps make people, again, contemplate what it really all means. But I don't think existential is necessarily um, growing or shrinking. I think it's... It's a branch of philosophy that has a lot of merit. I think it's something that's respected in academia. And, you know, I think it's good to... I think it's something good for us to be able to have a conversation about mm. because, you know, just because of what it entails and just how expansive, how extensive and how impactful it really is on our day-to-day -day lives. Do you, think, do you think humanity's headed in the right direction? Do you think that the path we're on right now is has a good end or do you think we need some kind of course correction well if we're if we're going to link existentialism to social or political issues i mean it's important to look at the philosophers who really did that um just off the top of my head uh huey p newton of the black panther party obviously he was the leader of a you know a influential social organization and he in his writings he wrote about sort of the question of well what does it all mean because uh, Newton was observing that in black communities in America there were very high rates of suicide especially among men uh, who would have been the you know dominant workforce at the time and that really prompted him to think well you know if we're looking at these political issues as they exist and these issues you know issues like hunger or poverty or you know lack of housing or what have you or racism or sexism are having this impact on people to the point where they choose to end their lives 
Well, that, that didn't sit right with Newton. Newton argued for what he described as revolutionary suicide. Revolutionary suicide? Yeah, which um, linking, linking to sort of uh, Camus in a sense of, well, if, if you got nothing to lose, you might as well push that boulder. Newton argued that, well, instead of committing suicide, people should instead understand that their life is something that they really only have one opportunity to use and use that for bringing about social change that can improve the um, socioeconomic conditions of individuals who are dissatisfied with the world. So if we're talking about politics here, well, you know, perhaps what Newton was arguing is something that uh, some people look up to. Um, so he, correct me if I'm wrong, he was saying people should commit suicide in the name of the revolution no not not in the sense of just you know adventuristic or not 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 desire to like die and pick up a gun and just kill kill someone yeah rather rather in the sense of devoting one's life to the betterment of social conditions so so not just like dying in a physical sense but giving yeah. one's years to sort of something that they should find a purpose it, yeah exactly. and that purpose and that purpose is the improvement of uh, social and economic conditions yeah. do you think that's the responsibility of anyone or do you think people can find whatever purpose they want well i mean i doubt that that's the responsibility of you know someone who's satisfied with their economic conditions but I can assume that if you are someone who is, you know, hungry or uh, in a or you know, homeless or sort of in a social condition that would drive you towards these questions of existential despair, then you know, for someone like that, perhaps there is merit in Newton's ideas. Do you think anyone has a responsibility to help others? Do you think? It is every human's responsibility to help other humans. I would argue yes, and the justification for that response would be that, well, if if we look at uh, ourselves as individuals, we are the sum of the world as it exists around us. We are the product of a society that gives us this opportunity to perhaps read books or perhaps educate ourselves, be able to live comfortable lives, and. Um, if we just sort of, uh, if we're just born and we just absorb all this uh, information, absorb all this um, sort of uh, informational privilege, if you will, and then we don't give back anything, well, you know, what is the part, what is the point of that? We're just sort of being raised for no purpose. Are, are we just being raised for the sake of being raised? You know, well, or are we being are we having this impact from the world around us and as a such should give back to the world? Because, you know, if, if we're going to just live and not really provide anything, then how, di- how, how different are we to just cattle, you know? Well, are we different to cattle? Well, should we be? I'd argue that, well, the cattle are probably even more beneficial because when they die, at least you can eat them. But you can't, <laughs> you know, you can't do that with a human being. So I think, that, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that you know, perhaps there are people out there who really are just in it for themselves and not really looking out for anything. But you know, from my perspective, if we're going to be born, if we're going to have the opportunity to be educated enough to even question why we are or what we want to do with our lives, then in that situation, perhaps it is better to give back to the world, you know. Yeah. And uh, in in however a person believes that they can improve, you know, for some people that is through activism for some people that is through art and culture and i think when it comes to existential philosophy it really does come down to well we're just we're here we have to face that reality but what are we going to do with that opportunity you know are we going to better the world or are we just going to leave abandon the world as it abandoned us sort of in terms of bettering the world would you would you say that can be defined as reducing human suffering in a in a utilitarian sense of well, just reducing just, human suffering is the way to better the world. Well, you know, uh, suffering whether you know physical suffering through poverty or whether just cultural suffering through 
lack of you know art or music or poetry or anything like that i think yeah there is merit in giving back to the world i think there yeah, is merit uh, in that and um i think it really comes down to the the way that a person views the world the outlook that they have and how they choose to live their lives with that understanding do you think increasing human suffering can ever be a good thing do you think in there's 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 certain situations that where if we increase suffering in the short term in the long term we'll have a better society uh it's a inter- it's interesting you actually bring this up because uh this was a major conflict between Sartre and Camus this idea of well can we ever justify suffering or can we not uh for ex- in re- in relation to why Sartre and Camus had this disagreement Sartre was a marxist and his understanding of the world was that, well, you know, we're sort of fa- we're facing this. Um, w- we have this freedom to do what we wish as individuals, but we also have this obligation to, uh, you know, improve our social conditions. As Sartre understood it, with his philosophical lens. And so, so, so would he be in favour of a, re- a violent yeah, revolution? Yeah. So, so this is what the question was. Sartre was in support of these violent revolutions, whereas. Camus argued for the position that, well, you know, uh, why should why should a human being suffer? Why should anyone suffer? You know, when we're faced with this uh, absurdism, when we're faced with the world as it is, you know, who who are we as individuals to be able to decide? You know, which man is obligated to endure more pain than another? And I think within existentialism, you really have this you you have this left branch of existential philosophy which is tied to Marxism and sort of uh, Newton's understanding of existentialism. So kind of relating re- back to revolutionary that. elements. To yeah. It. And then you have the sort of uh, the right line of, you know, more more associated with Enlightenment liberalism and uh, this branch of ex- and Nietzschean existentialism where it comes down to the sort of betterment of the individual and yeah the understanding that well if the individual betters themselves perhaps they will in turn be able to better the world around them from that perspective i suppose that's a good kind of summary of of left wing and right wing really kind of left wing generally believe that the collective yeah. and right wing the individual exactly so we should should we uh improve the collective society or should we work on ourselves more yeah and i suppose that can kind of is a really kind of a dividing factor between lots of people. Yeah, you know, I think just the nature of how we can relate existentialism to politics like this and how we can link politics to so many branches of, uh, so many ways, you know, so many aspects in which the way the world works, I think all this really is is a testament to just how impactful existential philosophy is in our lives day to day, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether we're thinking about existential questions or whether they're at the backdrop of our mind, it's something that relates to, you know, all aspects of the world as it exists. And, you know, I think that's where the merit really comes from it as a school of philosophy, you know? If you could, because we're, we're wrapping up now. So if you could say, what what is the number one thing that you would think we should implement to make the world a better place and it doesn't have to be related to existentialism it can be whatever you think whatever you want the number one thing that would improve the world if you improve oneself that will give you the opportunity to improve everything yeah so what i mean by that is because that sounds quite individualistic well what i mean by this is that if we educate ourselves if we if we face this absurdity of the world as it exists and we educate ourselves, we improve our understanding of things, we improve our understanding of the way the world works, that's really all we can do because, we, you know, we, it's this choice of, well, do you want to sit here as a passive nihilist and just be sad about everything? Or do you want to use the fact that we have this opportunity, whether we wanted it or not, to live our lives and experience the world? Well, perhaps we should use that experience for the betterment of ourselves in a way that can help us better the world around us through maybe for maybe activism maybe through art maybe through culture that's my perspective but, on uh, this 
one person's idea of better themselves could be very different to another person's. That's true. You could be saying you should better yourselves, then some kind of right-wing menace can be listening yeah, to them and they can really but... <laughs> dive into the alt-right. Yeah. Uh, again, I think we need to ask ourselves, we understand that we're these blank slates that have this impact, we're you know, written by the world around us, do we want to be written by a world of malice and hate or do we want to be written by a world of solidarity? Because even if we're talking about individualism, well, within broader societal context, perhaps some people are comfortable with only having themselves look out for themselves. But, you know, I think it would be better if uh, we we all acted as a sort of... Um, group of people who are looking out for each other and sort of you know even branching away from existential philosophy even just to the way that we uh view the world as it exists i think it'd be better if we had a lot of educated people looking out for each other than just an ed educated individual looking out for himself because instead of having one pair of eyes looking out for you within broad within the context of broader society you're going to have thousands of eyes looking out for you and i think that's a good and healthy way to uh, organize a society of course there are people who may disagree with this belief and there are people who may agree with this belief but again i think it comes down to the fact that if you can rationally justify why uh you have a specific belief in how the way the world works how you can link back to existential philosophy then you know, by all means, if it's reasonable, if it's rational, then uh, there's no reason it can't be justified. Thank you very much, Rizbay. I'm very glad to have been on this podcast. In, in a sentence, well, any final words? In a sentence, man is free, man is freedom, so you might as well use that freedom, you know, to, to paraphrase uh, Sartre. In a sentence. In, well. One sentence. One sentence. Man, <laughs> is, man is free. Thank you very much, everyone. If you've listened, if you got this far, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming on Brisbane. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's been a pleasure as well, Lawrence. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>